roll and I'll just feel something. Welcome to Rackhouse Ramblings Podcast. I'm Jeff, your host. Here I like to talk about bourbon and anything related to it. Sometimes I talk about my life. Sometimes I talk about adventures I go on. Sometimes I talk about things that I'm interested in. But you know what? Every time I talk from the heart. I'm a firefighter, a craftsman. I'm an outdoors person and a lover of all things handcrafted. Thanks for taking the time to listen. I'll do my best to make it worth your while. Rackhouse Ramblings is on the air. This is episode 55. Thank you guys for tuning in. Today's podcast is back to the normal. I got a bunch to talk about, but first, let's get to the bourbon. <laughs> I spent the last weekend enjoying a Weller Special Reserve that we did bourbon I had on a few weeks back. Um, just a reminder, I bought this bottle from the Buffalo Trace gift shop. I forgot how good it is. It is really good. I wanted to talk about it again. It was so good. Uh, Buffalo Trace Distillery, I went to their website and says this has a softer taste, they describe it as. And I would absolutely agree. I was drinking it with one ice cube. And I have a one-word description, perfection. Uh, Weller Special Reserve, it's got no burn going down, a really uh, a finish that is smooth, and I call it quick. It doesn't like hang around in your mouth. It's 90 proof. It's good to drink straight up is how I like it. You can mix it if you like. Um, and remember, weeded bourbon, just so you guys remember, weeded bourbon, that only means that there is wheat in the mash bill. And it's a little, usually it's more wheat than normal. Um, and remember, bourbon has to have 51% corn. Uh, rest is usually like rye, malted barley. But when you do a weeded bourbon, um, they can either add wheat to the to the mash bill or they can, when they add the wheat to the mash bill, it's called a four grain bourbon. Or you can substitute the wheat for the rye. Uh, if you don't see any well or special reserve at your local party store, uh, reach for Heaven Hills Larceny Weeded Bourbon. That one I had on a few weeks ago too. That one was really good. Another one of my favorites. Not sure why I'm attracted to the weeded bourbons, but uh, lately they seem to uh, suit my palate very, very well. So tonight I will be sipping on some Weller Special Reserve while we talk about episode number 55. Mm -mm. So there we go. So let's see here. Over Memorial Day, uh, over that weekend, there was a special on the History Channel. I wanted to talk to you guys about it. It was a special on Teddy Roosevelt. I think they ran it on Monday and Tuesday night. And I hope some of you watched it. I know I did. I'm a huge fan of TR. That's what we call us nerds call him TR instead of Teddy Roosevelt. It was a two-night special. It probably could have been a or should have been a five-night special. Um, they, they talk about how he grew up and had asthma and all kinds of medical issues and had to, his dad tried to toughen him up and eventually, uh, fast forward and he becomes the president of the United States. I'm not going to spoil it, uh, and talk about the whole thing, although I could, <laughs> but it was worth watching. Even if you're not a, a TR nerd like me, I thought it was really, really interesting. Um, I've read a handful of books, uh, on Teddy Roosevelt and I'll tell you what this history channel special left out a lot of details, a lot of details. Some of my favorites, especially like the Medora in North Dakota, how he had a buffalo farm there and spent time there to heal when his wife and mother died. Um, I really wish they would have talked about Medora a whole lot more. Those are kind of my favorite. Oh, and the, um, the Rough Rider stories, how they went to Cuba to fight the Spanish uh, as a complete volunteer army, like volunteer, volunteer. Him and his buddies volunteered to go to uh, fight and he gave, he made him in charge and he had a whole troop of volunteer rich firefighters. They were all decked out in fancy clothes and everything. But anyway, I thought it was really cool. It's it's on demand, I believe on the History Channel. Uh, go to historychannel.com and check it out for Teddy Roosevelt. 
And as a quick side note, I have been really binging on a podcast called The Explorers. And The Explorers is a cool podcast about people, like it says, that were explorers. They did one episode, or I should say a series of episodes on Teddy Roosevelt when he did an exploration adventure in South America on the River of Doubt, they called it. I want to say it was four or five parter, but I also listened to a bunch of other ones about Cortez when he uh, came to South America and uh, Admiral Perry when he explored, I think it was South uh, the South Pole and all these different people. If you're into history like me and you, you listen while you're driving, check it out. It's called The Explorers. That was a cool podcast. So anyway, here we go. Staying with the Teddy Roosevelt theme. I visited uh, the Washington, D.C. area about a month ago. I went to see my stepsister, Lisa, and her family. Shout out to Dave and Felice and Hanan. You guys are uh, great host. I had a really good time and uh, we had fun there while we were there. It was uh, Hanan's bar mitzvah. My first bar mitzvah. I thought it was fun. We uh, uh, had a lot of, it was really interesting to me to learn about culture and everything and um, had a fun time visiting with them. And I did get to sneak away for a few hours on Saturday afternoon while I was there that weekend. And the the thing I wanted to see was, the, was Theodore Roosevelt Island uh, in the Potomac River. So we were out in Bethesda, was, I think it was Bethesda, and I drove down, I wanna say it was a 45 minute ride down there uh, along the Potomac River, and I parked the truck and walked across. There was a bridge that goes out to the island. Of course, it was pouring rain, like whenever I, <laughs> I go anywhere, it seems like. Uh, river was really flowing high, and it was, looked muddy like coffee, but you park your car, you walk across this bridge, go out on this island, it's called Teddy Rose, or Theodore Roosevelt Island, and there's a memorial. It's this huge statue of TR standing um, with his arm stretched out. The thing must be 30 feet tall, and it's kind of surrounded by a cool, I would call it a plaza. Think of something like Hart Plaza and the Diag in Ann Arbor if you put it together, something like that. So the with the sidewalks and the diagonal and like an oval-shaped, uh, there's this big circular pond that was uh, made a big circle around this whole area. And at the, the points of the circle, think north, south, east, and west, at the points were these little bridges across a pond. And they're all man-made. It's like a man-made granite pond. Um, it was really, really neat, but the sad part was it was in uh, uh, a sad state of affairs, sad state of disrepair. So that was the crappy part about it. But anyway, so with that being said, I went to the National Park website and uh, looked up some info on that. It was uh, Theodore Roosevelt Island National Memorial. I will uh, read this page from you. And from the website, I'll read this page from you. It says, the only memorial to the 26th president of the United States in the nation's capital is a small island in the Potomac River, an architectural memorial, and the restored natural landscape surrounding it together from a living memorial to the man known as the great conservationist. Theodore Roosevelt was the first president to make conservation of America's natural resources, a centerpiece of his domestic policy. For him, wise stewardship of land and wildlife made present and future growth possible. Almost 230 million acres of land came under the protection of the federal government during his term in office. Architect Eric Googler and sculptor Paul Manship created the architectural memorial with its open plaza and larger than life-size statue. Landscape architect Frederick Law Olmsted Jr. and his associate Henry Hubbard created the plan that still guides maintenance of the memorial landscape. Pretty cool. So it goes on to say uh, it's across from Georgetown. Uh, it says the island has a long history. It was uh, called Mason's Island. Uh, it's been named a, quite a few different islands. 
but it says that um, the Theodore Roosevelt Memorial Association hired the landscape artist to prepare plans for memorial in May of 1932. So from uh, they bought it in 32, and then from 34 to 37, they uh, directed the young men of the CCC. There you go. Civil Conservation Corps, that's cool, and clearing the island of most of the native vegetation and planting 20,000 native hardwood trees and shrubs. Wow, work came to a halt, did not resume until after World War II. What else does it say between, oh boy. So it was constructed between 63 and 67. The present memorial is a large plaza set in a clearing, the northern end of the island, <laughs> a 21 foot high granite tablet oh there's four of them these granite tablets i'm going to put pictures on instagram with the quotes from his writings surround the 17 foot high bronze statue i said 20 or 30 feet right it's 17 feet high so anyway it's pretty cool the 88 acre natural area of the island has great diversity uh it's part of the george washington memorial parkway that runs along the potomac river so think of heinz drive but two of them so there'd be four lanes to north, to south, and they follow the Potomac and they go about 55 miles an hour. Their people are flying up and down there. So I went and visited it. It was really, really cool. I liked it. If you guys ever get to Washington, D.C., you should really check it out. I thought it was kind of cool. It's not in downtown Washington, D.C. It's along the, the Potomac River. Probably more than you wanted to know about, <laughs> about Teddy Roosevelt, but too bad. It's my podcast. I like it. The sad part was like the whole thing looked so tired and so unkept. The pools were empty. The shrubs and the trees were overgrown. It was like everything could use a good cleaning. So it was kind of sad, but it was cool to go there and check it out in the pouring rain. So uh, I'm going to take a break. And when I come back, I'm going to read. We're going to stand the uh, Teddy Roosevelt theme for this podcast. And I've got uh, a story to read for you guys. So have a sip of bourbon. Stay right there and I will be right back. All right, so here we are. I found something special the other day when I was uh, surfing around on the internet. Uh, it is a reprint of an article from Outdoor Life. The title is called President Teddy Roosevelt's 1904 Colorado Bear Hunt, According to His Guide. Kind of cool. So this is from uh, 1904, and I will read you um, exactly how it's written from Outdoor Life. So uh, sit right there, have a sip of bourbon, and here we go. This is the editor's note. In the spring of 1904, President Theodore Roosevelt traveled by train to hunt bears and big cats in Colorado. The account of his hunt was published in the July, August, and September 1905 issues of Outdoor Life. The original story, simply titled The President's Bear Hunt, began with the introduction by J.A. McGuire, the Colorado-based founder and editor-in-chief of Outdoor Life, who spoke at length with Roosevelt when he hunted Colorado as vice president, and again on this trip. So this was his second trip to Colorado. The story itself was written by one of TR's guides, John Goff, who kept a diary during their weeks in camp. The story is the only official account of the hunt furnished in any sportsman's publication, wrote McGuire. Mr. Goff carried his own camera, from which several of the photographs here 
published were reproduced. Goff's original account spans dozens of pages and three issues. We have excerpted, excerpted most of it below. This hunt occurred while unregulated predator hunting was taking place in much of the American West. For a history of how the president's trophy hunts like this one turned into the hunting and conservation legacies known for today, read about it here. And here we begin, The President's Bear Hunt by John Goff from the 1905 issue of Outdoor Life. Before attempting to describe President Roosevelt's bear hunt in Colorado, I will first ask the readers of Outdoor Life to look for no prize essay or any pyrotechnic display of language. I am first, last, and always a guide and boast of no such splendid education as that with which most of the readers of Outdoor Life are gifted. But I do know a lion or a bear track when I see it and can generally follow the dogs on any kind of chase, provided they keep their senses and do. Oh, keep their senses and do not run me up too slippery a tree or over precipices that have a tendency to drop straight down. After my 10 or more years of continuous guiding in Colorado, one would think it might become tiresome and it would often seem very much like work to me. Well, that is true. Even of the effects upon all hunters who seek big game. Some days they imagine they put in the worst hours of their lives and probably do, but the next day their efforts may be crowned with such, such successes that their troubles of the preceding day are forgotten. And they think only of the exaltation in seeing that huge hulk of destructive animal flesh drop from the tree at the crack of their gun or that bear that has fought off the dogs for a half hour, heave over and roll down the hill as their bullet penetrates a vital point. Those bright, happy moments are not soon forgotten, carried in the memories looking glass for a long time. It is recurrent thought of them that makes us long to again hit the trail and listen to the music of the dogs. And so it is to me. After each hunt, I breathe a sigh of relief in a certain sense, but when the next trip is on, I feel as much enthused as I was on the last one. About April 7th, 1904, saw me a pretty busy man, for that was the day on which I met, went on Mitch, excuse me, on which I left Meeker, Colorado with my 16 dogs and 20 horses to join my guiding companion, Jake Bora, at Newcastle. For some time, we had been graining the horses and keeping the dogs in shape until when I left Meeker on that date, I believe I had as perfect an outfit of dogs and horses as was ever gotten together in one bunch in the West. Three riding horses were supplied to each member of our party, the president, Dr. Lambert, Lambert, and Mr. Stewart. The president wore a canvas suit most of the time with medium length ordinary hunting boots, a soft light colored felt hat, and usually a handkerchief thrown loosely around his neck. He used a 30, 40, 220 New Army Springfield rifle. It's a 30 caliber, 40, 220, New Army Spring Rifle, Springfield rifle that was especially made for him. On his first trip in Colorado, he used a 30-30 Winchester. On the evening of the 11th, four days before the expected arrival of the president, we had a light fall of snow, which continued for the next two or three days. All this time, Bora and I were out with dogs riding the hills looking for bear sign, in which we were unsuccessful. On the 14th, Bora... Wells and I went down to Newcastle to meet the president and his party. They arrived in the morning of the 15th at 8 o'clock in their private car. The president was eating breakfast when the train pulled in. He immediately quit the table, went to the rear of his car, from which he made a short speech to the 1,500 people who had congregated to see him. He afterwards went back and finished his breakfast. The president's first mount was Old Fred, an Oregon horse, which I secured for him, a splendid roadster, but nothing extra in the bills. His other two mounts were Martinus and Jumbo. 
horses with records for good work on barred clipping climbing trips. At 11.15 on the morning of the 15th, we started on the 18-mile ride to camp. The president and BP Wells, one of our best guides in the lead. Mr. Stewart and Dr. Lambert next, and Bora and I taking up the rear with the remainder of the packs and dogs. A chorus of shouts arose from the crowd as the president was bidden Godspeed on his trip. Within a half mile of the depot, we were lost to view in the foliage and draws of the hills. We reached camp at 4.30 p.m. where Jack Fry had dinner ready. The party sat down to a bill bill of fare of chicken pot pie, stewed tomatoes, mashed potatoes, hot biscuits, corn cooked in cream, canned peaches, pumpkin pie, and sauces. The president ate heartily, remarking as he, as he finished, this is better than we have at the White House. I feel that I ought not eat anymore, but doctor, please pass me another biscuit. On the 16th, the Sunday, the president consented to accompany Dr. Lambert and Mr. Stewart on a reconnoitering trip reconnaissance, I suppose, looking for sign and to get used to the saddle. Bora, Wells, and I went out with them, taking along dogs and starting at 8 a.m. We started for the Pinion Ridges north of camp, which was in lower country, expecting we might at least run into a bobcat track. The scouts who had been over this country before had not seen any favorable sign, favorable bear sign, so we only took along a few dogs. Going down the creek a mile or so, we soon began to ascend a steep divide. Finally reaching the summit from which we were afforded a commanding view of the country to the north, even across the Grand River and clear into Rio Blanco country. We followed along a ridge for some distance, Bora and I finally landing out on the sharp point of the ridge where a couple of days before we had seen quite a little cat sign. About five miles from camp, we made a circle turning back toward camp. We st struck here a fresh cat track with the, which the dogs ran and then lost. We all hurried to the point of the cliff from which we could watch the interesting work of the dogs working out the track on another ridge. After they had worked over the secondary gulch, my dogs, Gene and Badge, suddenly quit the cat track and ran onto a bear track. Hearing the dogs tonguing on the bear track, we all looked carefully when Mr. Stewart exclaimed, Bear! and pointed to a brown bear coming down the opposite side of the canyon with Gene and Badge after him. Bora and I started down the canyon at a good gate and succeeded in turning the bear, which went back into the same locality from which he had just come. After sizing up the situation and realizing the lateness of the hour, besides not having as many dogs as we needed, we decided to pull off the dogs and return to camp, preferring to again continue the chase in the morning. After being called off the bear, after being called off the bear track, Badge and Jean came back and joined the other dogs in the bobcat trace. After the space of a half hour or so, we heard the dogs barking, treed, and we all hurried to the spot to find that a lovely-looking cat had forsaken Mother Earth for a more secure, though less comfortable perch in the branches of a cedar. Before any photos could be made of the cat ship, Shorty, my bull terrier, climbed the tree and at the distance of 35 feet, oh, 30 feet from the ground, jumped for the cat, causing both to fall from the tree. Badge, another dog, caught the cat on the fly as she fell. And the next instant, all the dogs were on the little yellow animal, making short work of her. We then went to camp and resolved to make an early start the next day. I'm going to take a break right there, and I'm going to save some more of this for our next podcast. I think it's pretty interesting. They're hunting with, with dogs, and they're hunting for cats, and they're hunting for bears and any kind of predators. And I thought it was really interesting, too, in the story how he had a, a bull terrier that would climb a tree and grab this cat out of the tree. It sounded like a mountain lion when he said yellow. So we're going to take a break right there. 
I think it's pretty fun to read. I'm going to continue on the next podcast. We'll read some more of this. And uh, Rackhouse Ramblings, episode 55, is going to be right back. Your dress on my look jack. That's all right, just lick it. You know how to do that, don't you? I don't want no more of your reefer. You know how to eat ice cream? Hey, your pussy. You eat ice cream? Hey, no, not that kind. All right, we're back from the break. You know what? I changed my mind. I'm going to read a little bit more. I started, I set this article down and started reading it. And I said, you know what? I'm not going to stop here. I'm going to go a little bit further. So here we go. I'm going to keep reading. This is uh, President Teddy Roosevelt's 1904 Colorado bear hunt. And I'll start where we left off. On the second day of the hunt, or the third from Newcastle, we went back with a full pack to the head of the gulch where the day previous we had seen the bear. When we got to within 30 yards of the track by which the bear had crossed over the ridge, the dogs winded the track, became very unruly. Old Jim got especially so and broke away from me. A minute later, we decided to turn them all loose. From that time on, we had a warm chase, running the bear from 11 a.m. to 12.45. We were favored by being on the opposite side of the ridge from the dogs and could see them all the time. Soon we brought him to bay on a big rock where he stood defiantly fighting the dogs. Bora said to Anderson, one of the guides, go up above and chew him down by throwing rocks on him. The idea was to get him down so as to save the president climbing the steep rocky hill, which was too precipitous to take a horse up. After Anderson had climbed the hill, and as he approached the bear, he bolted and ran around Anderson to a little pocket in the gulch. Then the balance of the party, Bora and I in the lead, decided to ride up a little ridge and get onto the bear from another quarter. As it was evident, he wouldn't tree. By the time we reached our desired goal, Anderson had gotten around him. He threw rocks at him and encouraged the dogs to such an extent that he found it was advisable to desist, as he feared the dogs would rush in and get killed. So he stood and watched him until the party got up. When we got to within 100 yards, the bear started around quartering from us, going on to the opposite hillside. Wells was in charge of the president's gun, and he handed it to him, as there was a chance for quick action. It was a chance shot, there being but a space about a foot across that was not occupied by dog flesh. But the president took it and hit the bear in the thigh, which caused him to roll down the hill, turning somersaults and biting dogs as he went. The dogs and bear rolled down together, the dogs piling up on the animal on a ledge on the side of the gulch. While he was rolling, I grabbed the president's gun and said, follow me. We worked our way down onto a ledge directly above the one on which the bear was located. When we reached the ledge, we found we were about 60 feet above our game and in position from which a fair shot could be had. It was lucky we got on this ledge, for judging by the way that bear was making mincemeat of our dogs, it would only be a question of time until he would kill off half of them. The president took careful aim and shot the bear in the upper part of the neck, which caused him to settle down for his last sleep. That was where the crippled dogs began to show up. Old Spot, one of Boris Fox Terriers, was found holding tightly onto the bear with his back broken, but game to the last. The bear had bitten the little fighter through the back, and he suffered so that Bora ordered him taken away and shot to end his misery, as it was impossible for him to recover. Shorty, my bull terrier, was also badly crippled, and I carried him to to water where I left him temporarily, as there was no way of carrying him. The next day, Wells went out after him, finding him huddled up on the hillside too stiff, 
and store to walk home, but too nervy to die. After some coaxing, he was induced to walk a little time, and after he got limbered up, he hobbled along fairly well. He walked all the way to camp, as it would have distressed him more to be carried, and came in with a grin. Although he had been bitten through the front shoulder and the thigh, Dr. Lambert then and there christened him the toad-faced dog. After examining the hide of the bear, we found its upper lip all cut up where Shorty had locked teeth with it. The bear weighed 350 pounds before being dressed. There we go. I'm going to end it right there. So they got the bear, lost the dog, and ended the second day with success. So Rackhouse Ramblings will be right back to uh, wrap it up. Stay right there. You know how to do that, don't you? I don't want no more, you reefer. You know how to eat ice cream? Hey, pussy. You eat ice cream? Hey, no, not that kind. Chocolate, 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 just lick it. All right? All right. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Listen to me, jacket. Yeah. Before you jump up with your fleas. House Ramblings podcast is back. This is episode 55. I hope you guys like listening to that Teddy Roosevelt story. I got more of that coming in the next podcast, but uh, on to more recent stuff. Last Saturday, I did uh, something really fun. I went to Northville Downs. This is one of the last places I know to see like live horse racing and betting. It is so old school. It is like OG shit. It is uh, right by my house five minutes away <laughs> and uh believe it or not this is how people gambled uh, long before con- casinos were legal everything was at the racetrack some of you might be- remember uh detroit race course over in livonia or hazel park raceway over in hazel park well this is the last one left it's in northville um, i did a little research and i could not find very much on it but i did find out that uh, it says on uh, one of these wikipedia pages about northville it says in 1944 Northville Downs opened as the first nighttime harness racing track in Michigan. So imagine that 1944, this is uh, during World War II. Northville was probably not much, but an intersection dirt area. And uh, here they set up nighttime lights. Says the Downs were built on the site of the former Wayne County Fair, where Joe Lewis trained in 1939 for his world championship later that year. Northville Downs has been in continuous operation since 1944 and is located at the corner of Center Street and Seven Mile Road. So that was about the only history I could find on it. Kind of interesting, though, that it's been there so long, or longer than the city of Northville, it looks sounds like, or the uh, incorporation of the city of Northville. Anyway, so the horse racing there is a little different than what you see on TV or like Kentucky Derby. They do what's called harness racing. Um, that means the horses uh, wear these straps uh from front leg to back leg and that allows them so they don't gallop all they do is trot so they'd be called they call them trotters sometimes and think of it like race walking or jogging for horses they're not allowed to gallop and um you know let me back up a little bit let's just say let me start by (laughs) talk about walking into this place so we parked the car uh we walk right in and it's like going back in time uh all the people all the characters they're all right out of like an old time moving there's like betting slips all over the floor they look like lottery tickets they're just scattered everywhere you walk and they're all losers so when people lose they just kind of throw them on the floor and um there's tv screens all over every wall everywhere you look you'll see tv screens 
And what some of them have live views of the track right there in Northville, but some of the others have live views of other races. Um, at Northville Downs, you can bet on any horse race going on anywhere. No shit. So like if you were there on Kentucky Derby Day, you can bet on the Kentucky Derby. We happened to walk in la uh, late Saturday evening, and during the day there was a race at the Belmont Stakes that was a big deal. So you saw these little uh, programs for Belmont Stakes laying around. So I was there with Ann and another couple there from Ohio out of town. And uh, we had uh, walked in. We start out at the ground level. And I say ground level because there's a grandstand. And you walk in the doors and you're kind of at the ground level where the bedding area is outside. Uh, or you walk in. How do I say it? So we walk in. There's a bedding area. You keep walking straight and you're a track side. And you're right at the track. So where the horses run, you're at the same eye level with them. And so imagine this, it was Saturday night, beautiful, clear night. The lights are on, the track was all lit up. And as you go outside, there's people all lined up along the fence where the track is. And you're literally like two feet from the, maybe less than two feet from the track where the horses run by you or, or trot by you. And as we uh, were there, we were in between races. So there is a truck and he, uh, the truck is circling the whole big oval track, dragging this giant rake behind it, smoothing the dirt. And there is horses and jockeys warming up. They kind of trot back and forth doing these nice slow laps. I don't know if it's warm up or cool down or whatever, but you could hear their hoofs kind of smack in the dirt, you know, like clop, clop, clop as they went by. Not, not so loud a clop, but like a thump maybe. It was pretty, it was cool. It was something to see. Then, so you look around, there's the strangest looking people that probably shouldn't be there gambling, but they're there gambling. And that's half of the show too, is the people. So they have these old picnic tables sitting outside there and guys sitting around them. And each one of these, uh, the guys that were sitting around would have like a curled up uh, program like you'd see on TV. And the program has all like the racing stats and data for that night. It lists the horses, the horses stats, uh, the number of races the horse was in, if they win, placed, or showed. So win is first place. Uh, when they say a horse places, that's called second. And then when they show, that's called third. So whether it's win, place, or show, all that. And then stats on jockeys too. And it's funny, like you could, as the jockeys go by, they're all old guys, like retirement age guys, like gray hair guys, like older than me. <laughs> and they're all sitting on these little carts that the horse pulls. It's a one person cart that's pulled behind the horse with two wheels. And imagine the cart has, the wheels are uh, like fat tire bike or fat bike tires, those kind of overinflated ones. That's what the the uh, carts look like. So Ann and I walked up to uh, the betting window and we bought four tickets. So uh, there were $2 bets and each one was uh, to win on four different horses. And we just said, you know, uh, three, four, and five, and six, whatever, each one to win. And so we had these four tickets, and I walk over to the group and held them out like a, like cards, and I said, pick a card, and we each picked one. And probably about 10 minutes later, the race started. We were standing out there along the gate, and that's when it kind of got fun. I had horse number five, and the way it worked was this race, there was two laps, and um, the, the, uh, the horses you would think just trotting along jogging was not a big deal but they were really really moving really flying around and as they went by us on the first lap the dirt was kind of flung up in the air and you could see like little bits and pieces around then as they came around for the second lap the uh there were handfuls of lights turned on like right near the finish line so they could do like a photo finish like you hear about or read about like an actual photo finish so it was pretty cool. Of course, my horse didn't win, but uh, our friend Julie, her horse won. That was horse number four. But it was really, really exciting. We stayed for one race, 
bet two dollars and won eight dollars <laughs> and uh the, we talked about it the whole rest of the night it was really a blast from the past if if you want to do something cool on saturday nights go to northville downs doesn't cost very much money <laughs> and uh you can bet your two dollars and kind of go back in time uh it's really something to see before they i think this is the last year before they tear it down so you get a chance go check it out uh, yeah, Northville Downs. So here you go. Anyway, that's all I've got for this week's podcast. Uh, Crackhouse Ramblings, uh, episode 55. Remember, don't drink and drive. Drink responsibly. If you do drink, pick a good bourbon. Thank you guys so much for listening. I'll see you next time. Left me a mule to ride The train pulled out I